Good evening, everybody. I see the rest of the group is at the watching the Cub game. <laughs> All right, very good. Can I uh, have you turn with me in your Bibles to First Peter chapter one? First Peter one, and we're going to really pick up the study at verse seventeen. But let's back up to verse thirteen to get a kind of the flow of the context. First Peter one, verse thirteen. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, as obedient children, not conforming yourselves to the former lusts, as in your ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, because it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here, that would be on the earth, of course, in fear. Now, when Peter said, if you call on the Father, he could be saying, if you call on the Father, in other words, in prayer, or if you call God your Father. In other words, if you're a believer, and he's addressing believers here, no doubt. He says, who without partiality judges. Now, the judgment that Peter is referring to has nothing to do with hell. Again, he's addressing Christians in this chapter. As Christians, of course, our sins have already been judged on the cross of Christ, and God has declared us justified, which means our sins will never be held against us ever again. God's law prohibits double jeopardy. So once you've been acquitted... You can't be tried for the same crimes. And uh, we've we got a lot of ground to cover. I won't have you turn to these. You can write the references down. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 10 through 12. But by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, as the old covenant. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins, that would have been his own body, of course, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down because his work was finished. Uh, the writer's point is that the priests of the old covenant never sat down. Their work was never done. There was always another uh, animal that needed to be sacrificed for sins. But Jesus offered himself once for all time and all people, and then sat down, the work was finished. And verse 14 says, For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. So once we receive Christ, we are now perfected uh, forever in the sense that our sins are completely wiped clean. Colossians 2, 13 and 14, Paul says, And you being dead at one time in your trespasses and uncircumcision of your flesh, he has made alive together with him, Having forgiven you, listen, all trespasses, not just the ones you committed up until the point you got saved, but all of them you would ever commit in the course of your life, having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us. He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. So God's got a ledger. Every time we sin, that sin is written in God's ledger. It has to be paid for. When Jesus died in the cross, he took all those sins, nailed it to his cross. And when he died, as we received him, God marked our account paid in full. Paid in full. The whole thing. 
Again, not just the sins that you had committed up until you got saved, and now the ones you've committed since then, watch out, you're in trouble. No, all your sins that would ever be written against you, the blood of Christ has paid for. 2 Corinthians 5.19, that is that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, listen, not imputing their trespasses to them, and has committed to us the word of reconciliation. So when a person receives Christ, God does not impute any longer their trespasses against them in the sense, again, their ledger is marked paid in full. So there's no handwriting of ordinances or wrongdoing against them. Now listen, since Peter is addressing believers in this chapter, the judgment that he says the Father will judge us with is really twofold. Uh, First is practical. Practical judgment, we would call it chastening or discipline, not punitive, corrective. This is the kind of judgment Peter has in mind here. Uh, This is, of course, a practical judgment or chastening for the sins we commit in this life. And I will have you turn to some of these, okay? Hebrews chapter 12, the idea of God chastening us. Again, God chastens children. He punishes enemies. We were all the enemies of God at one time, but when we received Christ, we became children. Therefore, He corrects, he disciplines, but he doesn't punish in the sense that we are sent to hell, etc. Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6. And you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as to sons. My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked by him. For whom the Lord loves, he chastens and scourges every son whom he receives. And the idea is if God is not disciplining you, if you can get away with sin and nothing, you're, you're, you're sinning and nothing is happening in the way of consequences, well, you have to ask yourself, am I really a child of God? Because whom the Lord loves, those that belong to him as his children, he will chasten, he will discipline. Now, this judgment, you know, which is, again, corrective if we are uh, sinning here in this, on this earth as Christians, Uh, This judgment that Peter is really talking about is going to result in a loss of rewards in heaven, but also a loss of blessings on the earth. We talked about uh, 2 John 1.8, which says, Look to yourselves that we do not lose those things we work for, but that we may receive receive a full reward. So John is telling us it's possible to lose rewards. It's possible to have rewards in your account and then lose them. And part of that is if you are walking in sin in some way or you're committing some sin you're not repenting for, um, you know, it could result, obviously will result in chastening right now, but also possibly loss of rewards in heaven someday. But also this judgment that Peter is speaking about is also how our works or our service is going to be someday judged by the Lord. In other words, it's going to be uh, judged to see if it was worthy of rewards. Remember what, I won't have you turn to this, 1 Corinthians 3. Remember what Paul said, how that someday we're all going to stand before the Bema Seat of Christ. Okay, we're going to walk up to the, to the Bema Seat of Christ, and we're going to be carrying, if you will imagine in your mind's eye, carrying all the works we did for the Lord to present to Him. But we're going to pass through some kind of a fire. It's going to test the works to see of what sort they were. In other words, what motivated the works that I did for the Lord? Was it totally for His glory or was it for mine? 
So a lot of people involved in ministry are here for themselves. They're in it for the recognition or, you know, the applause or whatever it might be. And God knows the heart. God tests the hearts. And so if those works were done uh, out of selfish motives or whatever, then they will be burned up, Paul said, those works. Uh, we won't receive reward for them. So that could be the judgment also Peter has in mind, that God's going to test each work we have, judge whether or not they are worthy of rewards, and so on. Now he said in verse 17 again, Conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. And again, fear, guys, is not talking about the fear of being judged and sent to hell, but a reverential fear of our Heavenly Father. Remember what the writer of the Proverbs said. He said, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And then he went on to say, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. The fear of the Lord. Again, as a child of God, I don't fear God uh, that he's going to judge me in a punitive way. Because the Bible says, if we've received Christ, uh, we've passed from death to life. We'll never come into condemnation or judgment. Uh, Romans 8, 1, there is therefore now no condemnation no one will ever be sent to hell uh, for those who are in christ but again we need to fear that if we're going to be fooling with sin god's going to discipline us well how severe could that be depends how hard-headed you are okay i mean our heavenly father is very gentle but as hard-headed as we will be continuing to sin not repenting is as hard as he can be in bringing consequences. In fact, in some people's lives, and I don't know what the number is, I would imagine it's a small number, but um, John said that, you know, there are some sins that people refuse to repent for that God just going to, and Paul said this too, that God's just going to say, you know, enough is enough. Uh, I've tried to reason with you. I've tried to get you to change. I'm tired of you dragging my name through the mud. You're coming home. And he just takes them home, all right? I had a pastor at a conference tell us pastors that uh, he had a woman he discovered in his church that ha was having an affair. So he called her into his office and confronted her with this. And, uh, and you know what she said to him? Well, I know it's wrong, pastor, but really, what can God do to me? I'm saved. Now, with that attitude, I question whether she really was saved. Well, what can God do to me? Let me count the ways. <laughs> I mean, that displays a definite no fear of God. No fear of God. So Peter said in verse 18 again, or verse 18, knowing that you were not redeemed with corruptible things like silver or gold from your aimless conduct received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as a lamb without blemish, and without spot. Guys, the word redeem means to purchase and set free by paying a price. To purchase and set free by paying a price. Now, the concept of redemption was something that was very well known to those in the first century Greco-Roman world. As we've already mentioned in other studies, during the first century, it's estimated that the Roman Empire had roughly people, you know, in the Roman Empire that there were 60 million slaves. And they were being constantly bought and sold all the time. So people understood what that was all about. And in the center of every Greek city, there stood the agora, the marketplace, the center of town. 
And that was the main place where slaves were bought and sold. Thus, one of the Greek words for the act of redemption, which is the purchasing of a slave, is agorazo, from the Greek word agora, because that was typically the main place where slaves were bought and sold. A second word for redemption that the Greek reader of Scripture would readily understand would be ex agorazo. Ex agorazo means the act of purchasing or redeeming, never to return to the marketplace. You know, in those days, oftentimes a man would buy a slave to use in the cultivation and planting of his fields. A lot of work. You didn't have your tractors and stuff back then. So if you're going to cultivate your field, get them ready for planting, and then plant the, the seed, uh, often they would go down to the agora and they would buy a slave or so, and uh, that slave would work in the planting, cultivating of the field. Also at harvest time, typically uh, a master would go down and rent or buy slaves to use in the harvesting of his crops, but then he would go back as, after he was done with using them, he would take them back to the marketplace and he would sell them. He didn't need them anymore. Exagorazo was a word that meant a man would buy you from the slave market and never return you there again. Now, if he was a good master, that was a blessing. If he wasn't, not so much. But uh, exagorazo was the antithesis of this practice of a buying and then, you know, and then reselling and, and so on, a slave. It spoke of permanent possession. The third Greek word for redemption is um, apolutrosis. And apolutrosis speaks of a man going into the agora to purchase a slave for the purpose, listen, of setting him free totally and completely, never to be a slave again. Now, that was exactly the word Paul used in Colossians 1, verse 14, when he said, In whom, in Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Redemption. He has purchased us with his blood and set us free, never to be slaves of Satan again. As Paul said in Colossians 1.14 and Peter, said in 1 Peter 1.18, we weren't redeemed with things like silver or gold. Well, that was typically what a slave was purchased for. Uh, some gold or some silver. Well, that was the, mon the money of the day. And uh, But listen, the redemption of a human soul involved a price that no human being could pay. I will have you turn to this, Psalm 49. You ought to have this one marked. The redemption of a human soul involved a price that no human being could pay. The psalmist echoed this in Psalm 49, starting with verse 7. None of them can by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him, for the redemption of their souls is costly. Let me stop there. The redemption of a human soul is so costly that no amount of money can purchase it because it requires a blood payment. Life for life is the idea. This is something that God communicated to the first two people on the face of the earth that sinned, Adam and Eve. You remember how God made this beautiful garden filled with all kinds of beautiful uh, fruit-bearing trees, put one tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and said to Adam and Eve, you may eat of all the trees in the garden, but you can't eat from the tree in the midst of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For in the day that you eat of the fruit of that tree, you will surely die. Well, of course, they did eat 
the fruit of that tree. But before they fell, before they ate the forbidden fruit, the theologians say they were in a state of innocence. This was the age of innocence. They were naked but unashamed because they were like, uh, you know, little kids. Uh, you have a couple of two-year-olds, a little boy, a little girl. Uh, maybe sometimes in the summer on a hot day, parents will just strip them down, let them go in the sprinkler or whatever. Well, they don't think it, kids don't think anything of it. They're just little kids. They're innocent. Adam and Eve were innocent. They didn't know right from wrong. They know that God said not to do one prohibition. But after they sinned in the garden, their eyes were open, and they knew right from wrong, and they knew they were naked. And so they quickly took fig leaves, sewed them together to cover the shame of their nakedness. Well, God comes down, knows what they had done, but asks them the question, have you eaten? Where are you, Adam? I'm hiding. Why are you hiding? Did you eat of the forbidden fruit that I told you not to eat from? Did God know? God, God asks questions not to gain information, but to provoke conviction and repentance. This is what God did in the garden, right? But here's the interesting thing about this. Adam and Eve took fig leaves to cover the shame of their nakedness. God says, that's not going to do. And he killed a couple of animals and then used the skins to cover them. Why? Because animal skins cover better than fig leaves? No. Because God was communicating a law that by the works of their hands, the shame of their sin could never be covered. Don't you know that was the beginning of religion in the Garden of Eden? Where man tried to cover his sin through the works of his hands. That's religion. And all the works that people do trying to atone for and cover their sins. And God says no because it's going to take the shedding of blood. Life for life. The soul that sins shall surely die, God said. You've sinned. You should die. I'm going to allow a substitute to die in your place. He took two innocent animals, maybe pets of Adam and Eve, and killed them right in front of them and then used their skins to cover them, communicating a very important lesson right up front, right up front, that it would require a blood sacrifice to cover their sin, the innocent dying in place of the guilty. He would later on state this clearly in passages like Leviticus 17, verse 11. God said, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it to you upon the altar to make atonement for the soul, for it is the blood that makes atonement for the soul. Guys, under the Old Covenant, God provided a sacrificial system whereby the blood of animals could be substituted for the guilty person to atone for their sins so that the person who sinned would not have to die. The one stipulation that God commanded with regard to the animal sacrifices offered to him was that, listen, they had to be without spot or blemish. In other words, they couldn't have any birth defect, okay? In other words, they couldn't be deformed. They couldn't have any kind of a, um, you know, just a birth defect of any kind. Also, they couldn't have any acquired injuries or wounds. In other words, if a lamb, you know, kind of fell down and rolled down a ravine and it was kind of beat up, you couldn't offer it to God. It was, it was, it was bruised. It was uh, torn up. Uh, lacerations. God says, I don't want it. Also, if a wolf grabbed a sheep and started chewing on it before the shepherd could run over and deliver it out of its mouth, of course, it was all bit up and chewed up. And you couldn't take it to God and offer it to God because it was going to die anyways real soon. All right, let's run it down to the temple and offer it to God real quick. 
before the thing croaks. That way I can get, you know, it's, it's going to die anyways. I might as well give it to God and pay my dues what I owe the Lord, right? God's not want your roadkill. Yeah, you keep that junk. I want the best of your flocks and your herds, okay? So they couldn't, this animal couldn't have any birth defects or any kind of acquired wounds or injuries. The animal had to be perfect, quote-unquote, if God was to accept this animal as payment for sin. But guys, even then, the blood of these animals would only be allowed by God to cover, to hide temporarily the sins of his people. These animals couldn't remove the stain of sin from their souls. As the writer of the Hebrews explains, in Hebrews 10, verse 4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Yeah. Of course, all this pointed to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who was without spot or blemish. In other words, he was born sinless. That's why the virgin birth was necessary, because sin was passed from the father to the children. You say, well, why? I don't know. Ask God. Okay? I mean, I'm sure some theologian could give you some eloquent answer as to why that would make great sense. I just know that sin was passed from the father to the children, Jesus received his humanity from his mother, but because God was his father and he was, uh, he was born of a virgin, he didn't have an earthly father, therefore he was born without original sin. So he was perfect that way, but also through the course of his, he's without spot, but also without blemish. Through the course of his entire life, he never sinned, not one time. So he was perfect in that way. That's why Peter says his blood was precious, precious. Only his blood could remove the stain of sin completely and forever. And that's what Peter's alluding to. And he says, we were redeemed, verse 19, with the precious blood of, uh, of our Lamb, Jesus Christ, uh, who was a lamb without blemish and without spot, uh, born without original sin, never sinned over the course of his entire life. He was worthy to die. For, see, he was the innocent who was able to die for the guilty. I mean, well, I say that sin required a blood sacrifice to atone for it, no human being could step forward and say, well, I'll die for them, because every human being is a sinner. It would, you'd need the death of the innocent for the guilty. And Jesus Christ was the only innocent man who ever lived, who never sinned. So we know that in Leviticus, and talking about again this idea that God demanded uh, these animals be perfect, Leviticus 22, verse 21, And whoever offers a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord to fulfill his vow, or a free will offering from the cattle or the sheep, it must be perfect to be accepted by God. There shall be no defect in it. That went for every sacrifice you offered to God, peace offering, sin offering, whatever it might be, the animal had to be perfect. And again, this pointed to Christ, the writer of the Hebrews, uh, mentions this in Hebrews 9.14. How much more shall the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot, without sin to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Look, I don't think most Christians realize how great a work of God went into our redemption. We talk about it, you know, we read about it. I don't think a lot of Christians realize how great a work of God went into our redemption. You know, we talk about the vastness of the universe God created. And you, and you especially with the, these telescopes nowadays like the Hubble, that uh, can see deep into space. 
and we see the vastness of the universe, uh, the planets and stars, the galaxies. I mean, when you look at these pictures and you look at this creation of God, it's a spectacular thing to behold. But look, as spectacular as the creation is, do you realize that only 31 verses in Genesis chapter 1 are devoted to the creation and the whole rest of the Bible is devoted to redemption? Think about that, all right? Think about that. The Bible tells us that creation was, listen, the work of God's fingers. We read in Psalm 8, verse 3, the psalmist said, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained. So as vast as this universe is, it was just finger work for God. However, when it came to redemption, the Bible says, listen, he bared his arms, or in other words, he rolled up his sleeves. Guys, the work of redemption, or as Paul the Apostle put it, the new creation, was far more involved, and from a human standpoint, far more difficult to accomplish than was the original creation of the physical universe. Think about it. In the creation of the physical universe, all God had to do was speak, and everything came into existence. But when it came to the redemption of our souls, the Lord Jesus Christ, God in human form, had to die. Quite a difference. You know, sometimes unbelievers ask, why did Jesus have to die to pay for sins? I mean, why couldn't God just forgive people and move on? That's how we think, right? And I think J. Vernon McGee articulated it pretty well, uh, answering that question. Let me read it to you. He said, and I quote, Forgiveness is not the act of an indulgent deity who is moved by sentiment to the exclusion of justice, righteousness, and holiness. Forgiveness depends on the shedding of blood. It demands and depends on the payment of the penalty for sin. Christ's death and the shedding of his blood is the foundation for forgiveness, and without that, there can be no forgiveness. I think here we need to learn the distinction between human forgiveness and divine forgiveness. They are not the same. Human forgiveness is always based on the fact that a penalty is deserved and that the penalty is not imposed. It simply means that one wipes out the account. I've been wronged, the person wronged me, they've sinned against me, I'm just going to forgive them. McGee said, God is holy and righteous. Therefore, divine forgiveness is always based on the fact that there has been the execution of the penalty and the price has been paid. Human forgiveness comes before the penalty is executed. Divine forgiveness depends upon the penalty being executed. It is really too bad that this is something which has bogged down our entire legal system today. That is why we are living in a lawless nation where it is not even safe to be on the streets of our cities at night. There has been a confusion between human forgiveness and the, righteous, uh, and the, and the uh, righteousness of law. We are in trouble because of the leniency on part of certain judges throughout our land. They sit on the bench and think that they are being big-hearted by letting the criminal go free. My friend, the righteousness of law demands that a penalty must be paid. I once heard a judge say, if God can forgive, then I can forgive. But God paid the penalty, and then he forgave. Is the judge on the bench willing to go and pay the penalty? 
I don't think you have any right to take men out of death row unless you are willing to take their place because a penalty must be executed, end quote. This is something that is stressed in both the Old and New Testaments. It's very clear. Hebrews 9.22, For without the shedding of blood there can be no remission of sin, no forgiveness. Without the shedding of blood there can be no remission of sin. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul said, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far off have been brought near. We were all alienated from God at one time. We are born into this world as fallen sinners. As such, we had no relationship with God. We were not connected to Him. Uh, we had no communion with Him at all. And uh, we were far off in the sense we had no fellowship. But through the blood of Christ, Paul said, we have been brought near. Yeah, now we have oneness with God, communion through the blood of Christ. Guys, the uh, penal substitutionary death of Christ, in other words, that he suffered in our place, that we might receive redemption and forgiveness for our sins, listen, is the very foundation upon which the gospel is built. And yet I'm sorry to say many today are ashamed of the gospel. They're embarrassed by the notion that we are saved by the blood of Christ. I've even heard some some say that people who believe that, yours is a bloody religion. And they're embarrassed. They call themselves Christians. Their number is growing. They're embarrassed that we believe that, as the Bible teaches, that we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ because in their minds it sounds barbaric, uncouth, even repulsive. And so they are denying the penal substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. Turn to Philippians chapter 3. These folks were also around in Paul's day. The devil has always been at work trying to deny the efficacy of the shed blood of Christ. In Philippians 3.18, Paul addresses these very people in his day. For many walk of whom I have told you often and now tell you even weeping that they are the enemies of of the cross of Christ. Why was Paul weeping? Because a crossless Christianity is a Christless Christianity, and a Christless Christianity can't save anybody. That's why Paul was weeping, because you had false teachers telling people that they didn't need the cross of Christ. They didn't need to believe that to go to heaven. And Paul is saying they're being deceived into thinking they have a relationship with God, that they have been forgiven for their sins, yet they deny the power of the blood of Christ in saving and in forgiving them. You know, author Steve Chalk, and he's not the only one by any means, but uh, Steve Chalk wrote a book a, a, a few years back. In it, he rejected the whole idea of penal substitution. Again, penal punishment, substitution, that another was punished in our place. He rejected that in his book, The Lost Message of Jesus, claiming that such a doctrine, listen, his words, turns God the Father into a cosmic child abuser. Now think about that for a minute. This is the mentality of some who call themselves Christians. The idea that God would punish his son for our sins, I think the illustration he used was, um, if your dog does something wrong in the house, chews up something, you don't go over and kick your three-year-old. We were the sinners. Why would God punish His Son for our sin? Now, I personally believe a man 
who cannot figure that out does not know God. That's about as basic as it gets. That another was punished in my place, and it can only be the innocent for the guilty. It had to be Jesus Christ. Of course, we know it was. But you have people who are denying this truth. Peter says, Paul, all the writers of the New Testament all said, that it's through the shedding of Jesus' blood that we have remission of sins and fellowship with God that we're saved. Turn to 2 Timothy 3. I mean, it shouldn't shock us that we have people talking about this today. It's actually a fulfillment of Bible prophecy. 2 Timothy 3, verse 1. Paul said, but know this, that in the last days perilous times will come. For men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers. Verse 5. Having a form of godliness, but denying its what? Its power. What power is he talking about? I believe he's talking about the power he mentioned in Romans 1.16. For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation. When Paul said in 2 Timothy 3 that you have those who have a form of godliness, in other words, they talk like Christians, they, they think they're Christians, but they deny the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God, well, he said, from such people turn away. I believe he's saying they don't know God. Stay away from them. Second Peter 2, verse 1. Peter said, But there were also false prophets among the people in the Old Testament period, even as there will be false teachers among you, those in the church age, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies listen even denying the lord who bought them and will bring upon themselves swift destruction again it seems that peter is saying the destructive heresy that they will bring into the church is that denying the blood of christ paid for sin now that is you talk about heresy that is the the, the mother of all heresies there's a lot of heresies that will do great damage uh, to your walk with God. This one will keep you from heaven. This one will keep you from being a Christian, even though you might still think you are one. If you don't believe that Jesus' blood was the, the thing that God allowed to purchase our redemption, well, you, you, you can't be saved. Yeah, Many today, again, are rejecting the biblical gospel in favor of a kinder, gentler gospel again a gospel without a cross which is not the true gospel at all turn to galatians 1 of course very familiar to all you galatians 1 verses 6 to 8 paul said i marvel that you are turning away so soon from him who called you in the grace of christ to a different gospel not the gospel that paul brought which is not another but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of christ but even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. And uh, the Greek it uh, is um, cursed to the lowest hell is the idea. Again, even in Paul's day, you had false teachers running around trying to pervert the gospel in a variety of ways. But one of the big ways was they were trying to deny that Jesus' blood atoned for sin. Guys, penal substitution is found from Genesis to Revelation. 
One example very familiar to all of you is Isaiah 53. I'll read verses 5 and 6. But he, speaking of Jesus, was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him, and by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, on Jesus, the iniquity of us all. That's the very definition of penal substitution. It's the gospel. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Because Peter talks about redemption through the blood of Christ. Paul says the same thing, but then adds in Ephesians 1, 7, In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. Listen, the forgiveness of sins. The word forgiveness basically means to send away. That's the basic idea of the word that is translated forgiveness, to send away. It's actually a legal term, which meant to repay, to cancel a debt, grant a pardon. But the basic idea was one of forgiving a debt. And guys, that's why in the Jewish mind, they looked at all sin as a debt that they owed God. And that's why they brought the animal sacrifice to God as a payment. One historian said, and I quote, Israel's greatest holy day was Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. On that day, the high priest selected two unblemished sacrificial goats. One goat was killed, and his blood was sprinkled on the altar as a sacrifice. The high priest placed his hands on the head of the other goat, symbolically laying the sins of the people on the animal. The goat was then taken out deep into the wilderness so far that it could never find its way back. In symbol, the sins of the people went with the goat, never to return to them again. Well, as beautiful and meaningful as, as that enactment was, it didn't actually remove the people's sins, and they all knew it. It's a beautiful kind of a reenactment every year. But the people knew that, you know, that didn't really take away their sins. What God was doing, though, was causing it to be a picture of what only God himself in Christ was going to do, or be able to do, okay? That through the shedding of his own blood, Jesus Christ actually took the sins of the world upon his own shoulders, upon his own head, you might say, and carried them an infinite distance away from where they could never return. That was the idea. One author put it this way, and I quote, It is tragic that many Christians are depressed about their shortcomings and wrongdoing, thinking, and acting as if God still holds their sins against them. Forgetting that, because God has taken their sin upon himself, they are separated from those sins as far as the east is from the west, quoting Psalm 103, verse 12, end quote. Guys, look, Satan is always going to try to get us to think after we have confessed our sins and all, and we know the Bible says if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, right? This is talking to Christians now. Because we're going to blow it as Christians, right? We're not perfect. So as Christians, when we sin, our fellowship with God is broken on this earth. Okay, the blessings dry up. But when we confess our sins, we are reconnected, you might say. Uh, we are back in fellowship with God. But Satan is always going to try to make us think that, you know what, God is still holding those sins against us. And the more I sin and the more I ask for forgiveness, the less I believe God is really forgiving me. He's, he's holding things. I mean, come on, I've asked for forgiveness for that thing 50 times. Certainly, I've worn it out. God's not forgiving me anymore. 
And of course, the idea is that Satan wants to condemn because, you know, God convicts, Satan condemns. What's the difference? They both feel kind of yucky, right? How do I know which one's operating? Listen, here's a simple definition. God, if God's convicting, you will feel like running toward God and getting it right. If Satan's condemning, you'll feel like running away from God and hiding. That's the difference. And if you feel like running away from God, if you feel like you just want to run and hide from God, you know you're being condemned by the devil. Don't play into it. Come back to the Word and, and read what the Word says about how God loves you and has promised to forgive you no matter how many times you blow it. If you're sincere, you ask for forgiveness, it's taken care of. And your fellowship is restored. I know we've read Colossians 2, 13 and 14 already, but let me read to you one more time out of the NLT. Where Paul said, God made you alive with Christ, for he forgave all our sins. He canceled the record of the charges against us and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. So Paul is saying, look, God is not holding anything against us because it's all of it's been taken care of. Christ paid for all of our debt. Our ledger is marked paid in full with the blood of Christ. We've talked about this. That's what Jesus said from the cross. It is finished, right? Bowed his head, dismissed his spirit. To tell us in the Greek can be translated paid in full. Paid in full. To receive full payment for all my sins, I just need to receive Christ. Because he, he did the work, right? Peter goes on to say in 1 Peter 1.20, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world. Jesus was. And this work of redemption is the idea. He, was, uh, he indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times. Now, when I read that verse, two scriptures came to my mind. I'll just share them with you. Revelation 13, 8, where it says, Jesus Christ is the Lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world. So even before the foundation of the world, God knew we were going to blow it. He already had the plan of redemption in place. He already saw Christ... Uh, hanging on uh, on Calvary's cross. Peter's point is, redemption wasn't a quick plan B because man blew it. Uh-oh, man, that caught me by surprise. I told him not to eat that apple, okay? I was pretty sure they were going to not eat that fruit, okay? If they did it, uh-oh, we got to have plan B now. Well, that's ridiculous. And Peter said it. And John is saying it here in Revelation 13, 8, that Jesus Christ was the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. God already knew we were going to blow it. He already had the plan of redemption uh, in his mind. It was, in fact, it was already a done deal in the mind of God. In Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, we read, But when the fullness of time had come, so God had this plan of redemption, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So, of course, God had this all worked out in eternity, but, of course, we live in time. And so when Christ was born, time and eternity intersected at the incarnation when Jesus was born. And now, all of a sudden, what God had already purposed, what God had already planned, now was coming to fruition as Christ was now living among us who would eventually go to the cross and die in our place. One commentator put it well when he said, and I quote, God was not taken by surprise by the fall of man. It was foreknown in the councils of eternity. If God acted in creation, he would eventually have to act in redemption. All three persons of the Godhead would have to be involved. So it was that before God ever stooped down to fashion Adam's clay, 
before the song of the seraphim ever awoke the echoes of the everlasting hills, before the galaxies were ever flung into orbit, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit conceived the plan to redeem Adam's ruined race when once the fall transpired. It was thus foreordained, quoting Peter, before the foundation of the world, that when the fullness of the time was come, God the Son would enter into human life, he would become the babe of Bethlehem, and then, in due time, the Lamb of Calvary. Our redemption was no afterthought with God. It was part of a plan. The full ramifications of that plan escape us now. But when we arrive in glory and know, even as we are known, quoting 1 Corinthians 13, 9-12, then we'll understand, we'll understand fully, all that God had planned. We sh- and we shall outsing the angel choirs. We shall sing from full hearts as only a redeemed people can sing. End quote. Love it. Absolutely true. Back in First Peter 1 verse 20, Peter said, He was foreordained before the foundation of the world, listen, but was manifest in these last times for you. The word manifest comes from a Greek word that carries with it the idea of making something clear or revealing something. It speaks here of Jesus' incarnation, that when Jesus, God became man, it was God's disclosure of himself, his full disclosure. We've talked about this, how that in the Old Testament, God revealed uh, bits and pieces of himself through prophets and angels, visions and dreams. But suddenly when Jesus stood on the earth, he was God's full disclosure of himself to man as we have said i think it's colossians 1 15 uh, jesus is the image of the invisible god and uh, image is, is a word that was used of how they would take a stamp and stamp a coin with the image of caesar paul is saying that god stamped his image on human flesh in the person of jesus christ and when peter says that jesus was incarnated in these last times It reminds us of Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, which says, God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers, the Jewish patriarchs, by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son. The last days, or the last times, as Peter called them, started with Jesus' first coming and will end with his second coming. Listen, when he will establish the kingdom age, a new time, and the dawn of a new day in the history of mankind. You remember what Malachi, God speaking through Malachi said, the last book of the Old Testament. He, it says here in Malachi 4 verse 2, talking about Messiah, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. Now, years ago, we had a guy who, uh, he didn't last long. He came to the church for a little while. And um, we had in the bulletin, a quote from Malachi for this Christmas thing we were doing. Anyways, he thought that was that was horrible. We we spelled it S U N, the Son of Righteousness. Said so, you, you you know. I, and I said, well, wait a minute. Took him to Malachi four verse two and said, well, it's right here. Okay, the Son S U N of Righteousness shall arise with healing in his wings. He said, well, that's got to be a typo. No, it's not a typo. You gotta understand what Malachi is saying. He's likening the Messiah to the sun, the dawning of a new day, with healing in his wings. Imagine the rays of the sun going out, bringing light 
warmth, a new day has dawned, is the idea. That's what it's going to be like when Messiah returns and establishes the kingdom. So these last days technically started with the first coming of Christ, has in these last days spoken to us by his son, Hebrews 1, verse 2. And they shall culminate with Jesus' return to establish a new day, a new kingdom, a new world order called the kingdom age, the dawn of a new day in the history of mankind. Well, again, Peter 1, verse 20, He indeed was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, Peter was an eyewitness to both the resurrection of Christ, he saw the resurrected Christ, and he saw the glory of Christ's second coming on the Mount of Transfiguration. Remember Matthew 17, verses 1 and 2. So Peter was an eyewitness of both the resurrected Christ, you know, his first coming, basically, and then his second coming glory. And Peter said, look, you know, who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now listen, guys, faith and hope have been a recurring theme throughout this chapter. Let me re review quickly. Verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Verse 5, Who are kept by the power of God through faith. All of us believers who are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 13, Therefore gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And then verse 21, Who through him believe in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now, grammatically, guys, in the Greek, the entire first chapter of Peter's epistle revolves around verse 13. This is the command that everything he has been saying points to. All right? One commentator said, if we miss this imperative, an imperative in the Greek is a command, if we miss this imperative, we will miss Peter's point altogether. From the opening words in verse 3, Peter has been moving toward the command, listen, to set our hope on the grace that will come. The call for struggling Christians is this, set your hope fully on the future coming of Christ, end quote. Of course, Peter's command to set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you is preceded by an equally important command, which was to gird up the loins of your mind and be sober-minded. Uh, first part of verse 13. As we said last week, guys, when Peter commands us to do this, to gird up the loins of our mind and be sober-minded, basically, he is saying that, that we are to free ourselves from worldly thoughts and cares that will hinder our ability to serve the Lord it will wind up stunting our growth. So free your mind. Free your mind from anything that will distract you. Take you away from what's really important, which is, as Peter's been saying, living your life completely for the glory of God, waiting for Christ's return. We could put it this way. Peter's admonishing us not to put ourselves under the influence, we might say, of the wine, quote-unquote, of the deceitfulness of riches, and the material things of this world, the things that the God of this world, the devil, will use to intoxicate us in an attempt to take us away from God. What have we just described in a nutshell? Spiritual warfare. 
spiritual warfare. Look, I just want to wrap this up and actually set up for next week's study. But listen to me. And we've talked about this, so this is not new ground for most of you. Um, But when Peter says you need to gird up the loins of your mind and be sober-minded, resting your hope fully on the grace that is to be brought to you with the revelation of Jesus Christ, what he's got in mind is spiritual warfare. You say, well, how so? Spiritual warfare is warfare that's being primarily waged in the mind for control of the way people think. Let me say it again. Spiritual warfare is warfare that's being waged primarily in the mind. It takes other forms, but primarily it's warfare being waged in the mind for control of the way people think. Listen, the devil knows if he can control the way a person thinks, he can control the way a person lives, and that means he can take them captive to do his bidding. They become his slaves. People don't realize, of course, unbelievers are are clueless because they just don't know this. We know it because we were once unbelievers and we can look back and see what the devil was doing because now we see clearly. But before we got saved, for all the years before we received Christ, we were being brainwashed incessantly through, you know, media and movies, TV, everything, magazines, music, the whole nine yards. Uh, all the media outlets the devil controls. He's the God of this world and controls the flow of information, which includes movies, music, and so on. We were being brainwashed by the devil through all these various things to get us to think the way he wanted us to think, which, of course, was think away from God and think about the flesh, indulging our flesh, and so on. We didn't realize that we were the pawns of Satan. That's why Paul says, look, don't argue with people that don't know the Lord. You're not going to win them to Christ by arguing with them. He said, but be humble, patient, able to teach, gentle, able to teach in humility, correcting those in opposition, that perhaps God will grant these folks repentance, seeing they've been taken captive by the devil to do his will. And they've been taken captive by the devil because he's gotten a hold of how they think. How they think. You don't think ideologies are a very powerful thing in a person's life, what somebody believes, the ideology they hold to? Guys, this is spiritual warfare. 2 Corinthians 10, we are to fight against every high and lofty thing that exalts itself above the knowledge of God. What is he talking about? Every high ideology and theory and, and, and philosophy that the enemy is pumping into the brains of people That, you know, the high and lofty thing that really goes against what God has said. Don't you know that practically every atheist fancies himself as an intellectual? And only stupid people believe in God. They've been brainwashed by the devil. They have fallen into that trap. They've embraced these high and lofty things that set themselves against the true knowledge of God. Again, the devil knows if he can control the way a person thinks, he can control the way they live and in essence make them his slaves. And guys, this doesn't stop. When a person gets saved, in many ways, the devil begins to ramp up the attacks because now you really are a threat to his kingdom. Satan wants us as Christians to keep thinking worldly thoughts that will destroy our relationship with God by keeping us brainwashed in his way of thinking Again, using all kinds of things. The internet is be the internet, you know, some people say, well, is the internet evil? I'll give you an example. It's like uh, any 
major city, let's say Chicago. In Chicago, there are many beautiful places you can go, museums and various other beautiful things, cultural things, right? There's a lot of beauty in the city of Chicago. You hang out there in those things, or those areas, the city's a wonderful place to, to learn and experience things. But there are some bad parts of town. And if you go into these seedy parts, uh, you're not, it's not going to be good for you. In fact, you may even lose your life. The Internet's like that. There's a lot of wonderful things on the web that you can learn from. But they don't really call it the web for nothing, do they? You know, you know the World Wide Web. Uh, you know, that kind of thing, right? Be careful, all right? Be careful. Because there's a lot of good things on the web. I use it all the time for sermons and things. Well, what a blessing. I used to have to run down to the library and try to find a book on a subject that I was trying. I just type Google it in, which is Google's an evil thing, but I, I, I use it, all right? But uh, Satan uses all kinds of things. The web is a big one nowadays with the, in the area of pornography to, to stumble a lot of men, even women. I'm reading statistics about how more women today are getting involved in pornography like never before. Uh, that was predominantly a, a male thing. But now women are falling prey to pornography. And, and of course, it, it takes all kinds of other forms. We've talked about all the ways Satan, things Satan can use to brainwash people. Uh, he, he tries to do that with us. And... Um, at very least, if he can't completely corrupt a Christian's thinking, uh, he can fill their head with all kinds of ambitions or things they can't live without, and then pretty soon they're so distracted with material things, as Paul called it, the deceitfulness of riches, that he's neutralized their effectiveness. You'll know if Satan is being successful in your life, whether you know it or not, because if you're thinking more the way he wants than the way God wants, listen, it's going to manifest itself in a love for the things of the world more than in a love for God. You have to ask yourself, what do I love more? Jesus, wherever your treasures, there your heart's going to be also. So as the devil got you greatly valuing the things of this world, if he does, that's where your heart's going to be. If your heart is really for the Lord, then that's the one you're going to want to serve and focus your time on. But the mind, and we're done. Let me just say this. So much spiritual warfare, most of it, is a war in the mind for control of a person's thinking, even our thinking, once we get saved. And that's why the New Testament has so much to say about our minds as Christians. I'll just read these to you. Colossians 3, verse 2, Paul says, Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth. Mark twelve thirty, Jesus said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. Philippians 2.5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Romans 12, verse 2, Paul said, Do not be conformed to this world, this world's way of thinking, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Guys, so much of the change in our thinking as Christians comes from filling our mind with the Word of God. I won't have you turn to this, you know this. Psalm 119, verses 9 and then 11, the psalmist said, How can a young man cleanse his way? Then he answers his own question by taking heed according to your word. Verse 11, Your word I have hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. God's word teaches us, listen, that godly living always flows from godly thinking. Always. Which is only possible, godly thinking that is, if we've allowed our minds to be renewed 
by the Word of God. I'm absolutely convinced that the reason so many Christians are living worldly lives is because they're still thinking worldly thoughts. Their minds are still conformed to this world's way of thinking, and they have not allowed their uh, thinking to be transformed uh, by the renewing that can only come from God's Word. Now, I'm not saying that they're not reading the Word ever. Uh, I'm not saying that they're not coming to Bible studies ever, although I doubt that. I'm just saying it's possible for a person to read the Word and not allow it to change the way they think. It's kind of a strange thing. But there are Christians who seem very resistant to any change in their lives, even though they do read the Word once in a while. You have to read the Word with the desire that it changes you. How can a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed according to your word. I have hidden your word in my heart. What does that mean? That it's like pixie dust sprinkled on my life, and if I sprinkle a few verses on me, I'm going to somehow magically be transformed into this victorious, mature Christian? No, the psalmist is saying, I hide God's word, God's word in my mind, in my heart, so that it becomes a point of conviction. So that when I do something or I'm thinking about doing something, that I know will contradict what I've put in my head from God's word, I'll think twice about doing it. It's that godly conviction that comes, which will not come if you don't know what God said, right? They're still living very carnalized because their minds have not been transformed by the renewing that comes from God's word. And guys, we'll look at the power of God's word next week. This is what Peter now is transitioning, right? After he teaches us what we have in Christ and what we're waiting for and the inheritance and the glory that's coming in the meantime we live on the earth he's saying and we need to live be holy for i am holy he says and it, it, it comes you know it starts in the way you think and and how do i think more like god get into the word he's gonna say he's gonna teach us starting in verse 22 uh of the power of god's word first of all to save us but then also to transform our lives so we'll look at that uh, next time. Father, we thank you for your word. Your word is truth. And Lord, we thank you that we have so many great and precious promises waiting for us in heaven. But right now, Lord, on the earth, we are to live a life that is honoring to you, a holy life. We ask you, Lord, to give us grace. That is, we first of all, that you would give us a renewed hunger for the word like we haven't known in maybe many years, if not ever. Lord, renew our hunger for your word, that we can't get enough of it. And as we read it, that we hide it in our hearts and we think upon it, meditate upon it. And every time we're contemplating doing something, we take the word out and we compare it to what we want to do to see if it's going to contradict what you have said. If it does, Lord, give us grace to walk away from whatever it is we're thinking of doing, that we might walk in holiness and purity. So, Lord, we ask you to continue to bless these studies in your word. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.